please pronounce your name correctly for me? Sure. My name is Autumn Knight. Little side note, I noticed that your website is actually Autumn Joy Knight. Yes. J-O-I, Joy, is that Mm -hmm. correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Is there a reason for that? Well, that's my entire name, and that's my government name. And Autumn Knight was taken, of course, by the many other Autumn Knights that exist. I know. I had the same problem when when I went to buy mine, like, God, 20 years ago almost now, I went to get Matthew Doles. I'm like, that should be easy. How many of those are in the world? Matthew Doles I was able to get, but Matt Doles, somebody else bought it. Some drummer in Iowa named Matt Doles bought that, and it took me 13 years to buy it back, but I have it now. How did you get it back? He stopped paying for it. Ooh. Yeah, so there is a, a at some point somebody might stop paying for the other name that's a better name. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people know me as Matt Doles, so they don't think of me as Matthew Doles. So like, so now I own both, and they point to one website. <laughs> but it took me thirteen years to get that. Thirteen years, I got to keep checking. All right. So before we started, you were t- telling me that you are currently on a fellowship in Rome, Italy. Right. Please tell me more about that. That just sounds so amazing. (laughs) Well, I am one of the winners of the Rome Prize this year. And the Rome Prize is a fellowship. I'm a Rome Prize. I'm an artist. So Rome Prize in the arts, visual arts. And I have a fellowship and I'll be here for a while. And I'm living here at the Academy. So I have a studio here, I live here, and I work here, and there's food here, and lovely staff, and lots of lovely fellows, right? So architects, composers, Italian studies, scholars, and other visual artists. So that's the the gist of the deal. How long is that? Well, some people have six months, and some people have closer to a year, so I'll be here closer to a year. Very nice. Yeah. Are you enjoying Rome? I mean, how did you get there with COVID regulations? To come here, you definitely had to have full vaccination. So off top, full vaccination and receive a negative COVID test within 72 hours of traveling here. So they're not playing. So FYI, if you plan on coming to Rome, uh, to Italy, I don't know how it is where you are. They say that you're supposed to do all that, though they do not check any of it. Okay, and because you're in Prague. Prague, yeah. I recently went to Paris, and in Paris, they're no deal. Like, they are full-on, like, regulations everywhere, flashing your QR code for everything. I mean, even just to buy a cup of coffee, I had to give them my, like, vaccination QR code. Like, they're very good about it. I'm not criticizing them. Czech Republic, not so... They're just sort of like, oh, you're here. Okay. I mean, when you arrive, you have to give a QR code that you've been vaccinated, and that's it. They say you're supposed to do these other things, but they do not follow up on any of it. So, Yeah, this is a a thing that's checked at the – coming here from the U.S., it's checked at the U.S. airport, right? So before you even get on the plane, all documents kind of have to be – ready but like once you get here it's not such a big deal at the airport you know just I mean, just yeah. fyi but yeah i think a- around in the city there 
you know, starting to get cold, temperatures dropping. So people are kind of going inside more. So you kind of do need to show your pass if you're going in certain places. So maybe it's not as strict as France, but it's, it's there. France was very strict, but I respect them for it. I mean, like it, it was, it was legitimate. It was legal. People followed it. Nobody seemed to have a problem with it. Like there was no animosity like there is in America kind of bullshit about not wearing masks and all that stupid crap. As you can tell where my position is. On <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have, I think maybe, maybe I saw one person with a poster board, an anti-vax poster board here, but and no, in general, people here are compliant. Well, Italy was hit hard at one point. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I totally understand that. All right. So let's go back a step. So the uh, the looking through your CV, I told you this before this, we did this, but I'm going to do it again for the recording. Your CV is incredibly impressive, A, but B, it's incredibly impressive because you are also very young as well in relation to me. Everybody's young in relation to me, but... I think you're young, if you don't mind me asking how old are you? I'm not young. I'm not going to reveal my age, but I'm not okay. young. I'm young at heart. I'm young in my spirit. Look at my gray hair. Are you as old as me? I probably am close to your age. I, I also have gray hair. I'm 47. Okay. But no, wait, I'm 48. Sorry, it's past September. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, happy belated. Yeah, no, I'm not that young. But you're not as old as me. No. Okay, good. I was going to say. Okay, well, but in your career, your career seems looks like in your CV very short. Like it looks like you started maybe about 2012 and sort of up to now kind of thing. So like to me that's a short career because my career goes back to like 1995. That's true. The career short. Yes. So what were you doing before you decided to enter this career? I had jobs. I was in grad school. <laughs> I mean, the things that you do before you, I've always been in the arts since I was a child. So I never stopped having a relationship with art or making art. But in terms of sort of understanding, oh, there is a, yeah, exactly. Like there is a plate. Air quotes. Right. Yes. For this to go when there's a proper kind of industry. Uh, yeah, I think I started figuring that out around then. But also, I have to admit, I'm a little bit confused. Your background, you have education. Like, I thought I was a bit of a nomad, but your education is London, New Orleans, and New York, and then Skowhegan. Skowhegan? Uh, Skowhegan. Skowhegan, <laughs> which I don't actually know where that is. I want to say Minnesota. Maine. Damn it. <laughs> All right, so you've been kind of all over the map. You've been, and then, and then beyond that, you have now been doing like from the look of your career, you've been doing residencies and fellowships. I mean, do you even have a home? Because like you seem like you're never home. You know what? That's a. I, I definitely, definitely have a have a place that I live. You know, I live in New York. That's a good point because I think before the pandemic, I actually did. I yearned for projects that would just take me to different places, right? And I didn't feel, it's, I mean, I don't think I have a career where I'm like, I'm never home. <laughs> no. No. I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I meant more as sort of the idea of like, do you choose actively to sort of live a bit of a more no, nomadic lifestyle where you want to go out and do experiences and, you know, experience new cultures and all this kind of stuff? Or is it just sort of like, that's where the opportunities are. So you just go there. So like, is it a conscious choice or is it the career that sort of dictated that to you? It's both. 
It's both. And most of that is due to the fact that I do performance. And the type of performance I do, your body, your body has to be there. I mean, most performance, you know, obviously, you know, is your body in a particular, is the body in a place, which, you know, it's not like I have a company, but, and they do my choreography. No, my body is the thing and I have to be there. Well, yet, maybe some, someday you will have a company. No, but go on. I, no I, I, I'm, I, it's on the table. It's certainly on the table. I have done performances where I basically created the score or the shape of the performance and I wasn't there, but I hired performers to be where the performance was because I couldn't be there and I would like be on the phone with them or I would, while they were doing the performance, like, I'm, I'm there, I'm sort of there. And this is the concept. So it can be done, but yeah, but you're right. I, I think the desire to see different places drives it as well. No, you said you've always had art in your life. What, like, were your parents creative? Like, how did you sort of come to being a creative person, period, much less choosing it as a career? Hmm. Were my parents creative? I do. Th- I, I often joke to myself that my mother was an amazing conceptual artist. I mean, the name Autumn Night, I think. Autumn Joy, Autumn Joy Night. Night was a great conceptual work. But no, she was not an artist at all. My, neither one of my parents were artists. I just happened to, when I was younger, go to a school that had an arts program at the center of the education. So let me, let me ask you a question really quickly. How did you find me? Anderson Ranch. Ah, okay. But were you there? Yeah, I was there. Very. That's where it was. Yeah, it was Anderson Ranch. That's how I found okay. it. Yeah, I've spoken to a number of people from Anderson Ranch because I did a workshop there back in 2001 and I loved it and of course just have great admiration for the place and so I always keep thinking I'm like okay who could be a good guest and I'm like anybody at the Anderson Ranch that's who could be a good guest <laughs> it's true the the alumnus alumni of that place is uh, amazing oh yeah and the, some of the people that I've already spoken to from there are just phenomenal people like they're just great people like the, whoever does the selection process with Anderson Ranch good for them like they are really good at choosing not only f- good creative people in their fields but good people mm-hmm. like they're, they're all I, I haven't met or heard of a, a an unhappy or bitter person in the bunch kind of thing oh good 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 now maybe they are i don't know <laughs> so wait okay so your your mother was not creative father not creative not, not necessarily they they weren't outwardly artists. I mean, I'm sure they probably felt like creative people, but they were not artists. They did like decorating around the house and like, you know, good food and that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, that's, a, that's a lovely response. Okay. Where was this though? Where, because as I said, like I saw London, New Orleans, New York. So where did you grow up? I'm from Houston, Texas. I okay. Third Ward, the South. Very. Very. Yeah. Very. I mean, uh, yeah. What should I say more about Texas or Hey, you're welcome to. I respect the arts in Texas. I think there's some great towns and some great like specific opportunities. As a state, I'm probably not a very big fan. Oh. Like on its on its whole. Well, you know, you know, it's going through a tough time 
tough time right now, Texas. It's got a lot of issues, lots of issues. It, well, I mean, it's had what oil money, racism, gen, uh, like uh, economic divides. Like they've, I mean, what are they going through now? COVID stuff, I guess. Every a- anything, anything. And Trump, Trump, I guess would be a big thing there, right? Anything outlandish and cowboyish. Machismo. Right. Don't squat with your spurs on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, but the Houston of my of my youth, I had great opportunities to to be exposed to arts. I mean, I, I just kind of I just went to these great schools in Houston. And so those those there are these shining lights there amongst all that other like mess, the cultural gumbo of a mess that unfortunately is seen as but yeah yeah that was kind of my 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 origins my origin story that but the manil collection is in houston right right i love that place yeah no it's it's great yeah the rothko chapel i love it i sat there for hours it was beautiful oh yeah yeah i have a friend who used to be a curator the head curator at the manil collection she left but she probably was there actually when you were younger that's she was probably the head head there for a while. And who's this person? Deborah Velders. Oh, okay, okay, I don't know the person. She l- left there probably, f- gosh, fifteen years ago. Twenty? No, tw- God, have to be twenty years ago now. She left there twenty years ago, so mm-hmm. long time ago. Anyways, all right. Back to your roving nomadic lifestyle. Okay. So <laughs> I love this. I, I I love this view of myself. I let's paint this picture. Let's paint this picture. Scarves, hats, boots, just jet setting, passport full. Yeah. I didn't even know about the scarves and the boots and all that. That's marvelous. Okay. Great. Maybe that's just the new the the version of Carmen San Diego. Hopping on a Vespa. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know, walking around with my helmet on my arm. Just picture it. So you don't live this jet-setting nomadic lifestyle that I'm picturing for you, I take it? No, no. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. I've been a couple places. You've been many places. Don't kid yourself. My gosh. You have quite a a wide breadth of locations that you've been. Mm -hmm. First of all, and you've also been doing a very nice job of doing international as well. But I, okay, so let's get back to the sort of the point of the thing. A, how did you know? You seem to have magically known, or somebody at your schooling taught you this that residencies are incredibly important for an artistic career. So, how did you figure that out? My partner is also an artist and is a few years older than me. My partner is Robert Pruitt. He's an artist and he he really kind of encouraged me to actually be more serious about being an artist, being a proper artist. So I kind of learned about residencies from him. I was like, okay, residencies, you know, how do you do them? Which ones did you go to? And so ultimately I ended up doing some of the residencies that he did because, you know, that was sort of my template, if you will. But, you know, the more I did them, I thought, oh, this is a great way to go to different places also. And of course, you know, residencies are communicated to the artist as a place to meet people, to network, to have time and space, you know, you know, you know, and to do your work. So it's all of that. It's all of that. But 
I think also I, I have been fascinated by this idea of finding something, applying for it, and then your body physically eventually going there. Just this sort of just that process. And that you can do that over and over again. It's not like, you know, when you're younger and you apply for college and it's like, okay, I apply for college. I'll go to college. I go to that place and I'm there for four years and maybe I live there for the rest of my life or whatever. It's not that, but it's, it's like, okay, I can pop there and learn a bunch and, and have a compact full experience and I can do it again and again and again. It is amazing. I mean, it, it's a an, an interesting luxury that we have in the creative industries that like my wife is an accountant and so she doesn't have the opportunity to do accounting residencies. So, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I guess she could do like a convention or something if she really wanted to, but like, you know, short of that. But it's an amazing opportunity to do residencies. I mean, they, they're there are so many different kinds of residencies though also so like that's another thing like you have done by your list let's see here six nine twelve thirteen residencies on your cv that's on your website according to you i'm just gonna okay, assume that's correct uh, yeah <laughs> i'm also assuming you built your website so i did with the help of my uh assistant you have an assistant i i had a i have an, a studio assistant Yes, but you know, a lot of artists have studio assistants. A lot of artists in New York have studio assistants. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, again, and that—that's sort of the studio assistant have Jordan. We met from a program she was in that brought young artists to New York. So I don't know if I necessarily would have been like, "Oh, I need a studio assistant," but it's still, it's it's nice to have that relationship. Too. Even if you don't think that you need a studio assistant yet, it's like, get one. Oh, no. I need a studio assistant. I just can't find a studio. I, but I'm also not really super trusting about people doing things to the quality level that I desire. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, I guess, is really the issue. Well, then no. That would not work. That would that probably would not work for you. You, you really need to be the person who's like, I am an artist. I'm, I'm, I'm being an artist. And you... Clearly and structurally, please, can you for me do it? No, I'm the guy who actually enjoys making spreadsheets. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do. I, I like. I really wish that somebody would create some spreadsheet for like step by step instructions of like, let's say, how to get a residency or how to apply for a grant. Like, give me a spreadsheet and a set of instructions. I'm there. I'm all for it. But you give me like these like open ended like. So why do you why do you want to come to this residency? And like, I got no clue. Like, I have no <laughs> idea how to fucking answer that because I need time away from my wife. Like, oh. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. No, no. I, I want to be clear. Love my wife. Love our relationship. Mm -hmm, the the point is, like, I believe, and we've we've tested this over the course of our relationship. We've been married for seven years, and it's when one of us takes time away from the other, it actually sort of builds the relationship a little bit better kind of thing. So it works for us. Good. Story I'm sticking to. <laughs> Good. I'm sure your wife will be happy to know that that's what you're saying out here. Oftentimes, she's the one that tells me to leave, so it's mm -hmm, fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I'm a perfectionist, so like it, you know, a lot of it's my fault, and she needs some time away from me because you know we're all a little crazy in our own way, and sometimes the crazies don't match up. Very true. 
Very true. That's a, that's a that's a good way to talk about relationships. We used to talk about like the before I got married, we used to say like I want somebody whose crazy is sort of complementary to my crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm great with a crazy person. Like I'm perfectly fine with dating or marrying a crazy person as long as their crazy is complementary to my crazy. But like 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 the same crazy, that doesn't work. No. 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 And a lot of people figure that out too late. Yeah, well, because oftentimes crazy is attracted to the same crazy. Mm-hmm. For listeners, I, I I would like to say crazy is in the colloquial crazy. Yes, I, this is not some uh, psychological term that I am using. No, 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 no. This is, mm-hmm. this is not meant to be like people who are who have actual mental illness. This is a, a fun, artistic, creative crazy. Right. Ecle- um, eccentric. Yeah. That's my favorite. Habits, word. patterns, behaviors, idiosyncrasies, closing the refrigerator, you, you know, like leaving the refrigerator door open. It's the, sa- it's the same, doing the same type of thing, you know, the same type of thing that pushes you on over the edge. What, what are some of the things that push your buttons? I've got my list right off the top of my head. I'm ready with it. What's, What's your yours? list? <sighs> Uh, well, it's specific to my wife. She doesn't screw the caps oh, on the toothpaste. Oh, oh. She leaves it like half screwed, but she does it for everything. Like, so it doesn't matter if it's orange juice or milk or or the the laundry detergent. She only half screws the lids. Drives me nuts. Let's investigate that. What do you think that's about? I think it's a control mechanism. Personally, say more. <laughs> I believe, okay, my, my psychological input on that is like, I believe that, because I did study psychology for two years in college, by the way. So the the reason for that is, is they don't want to complete something. Like people who don't do, they don't want to complete it because there's some feeling of they don't want to finish something. They want to leave something sort of half done. Like, oh, I still have to do that. Or I'm still, so they want to leave a, a, a thread of something still to be done so that they don't want to complete it. Me, on the other hand, I'm the opposite of that. I like having things completed so that I can then move on to my next task. Done. But she likes having things lingering on and on and, and as simple as not screwing a cap on a toothpaste. Yeah. You know, so many things are about mortality. And I'm, I'm trying to make the connection here between, seriously, these two responses of, okay, if I, if I twist the cap on all the way, I have nothing to come back to. There's no more. Like, there's no more. Task is done. Move on to the next. Right. Yes. But then, but okay, I've, I've screwed the cap on all the way. It's done. There's more life to live because I'm not coming back to this toothpaste cap. Well, there's also the issue of like, like being considerate. Like it's a consideration, like another one here. I'll give another good one. Um, when you're done with a roll of toilet paper, do you leave the empty roll of toilet paper or do you replace it with a new one? Never, never leaving it. Never leaving the empty for everyone. Never leave it. My wife constantly leaves empty ones for me to replace. What is that one about? I think it's similar to the screwing of the cap, <laughs> like completing a task, basically. Because to me, the, the completion of that task is to put a new roll of toilet paper. That's completing the task. Right. 
we got we got to get to the bottom of this. I, I still want to hear some of yours. By the way, I've been very very forthcoming about my wife and my relationship. No, but no, 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 no. It's it's, it's not necessarily about your wife because this these are types of these are types of behaviors. These are types of things that people do that ha- do happen in my life, and I do wonder, like, hey, stop, 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 stop. Twist that cap. Twist the cap all the way. Can, can, but you know, but seriously, seriously, can you imagine? Do you do you eat turmeric? Do you eat dry turmeric? Do you use turmeric? Not currently. I have in my life, but not currently. Oh, still, it's good for inflammation. I would I would recommend it with a little bit of black pepper. But can you imagine? You know the color of turmeric, right? Mm-hmm. So can you imagine grabbing a container of turmeric with the cap half twisted? And then there's turmeric all over the counter. I don't have to imagine. I have plenty of other examples. <laughs> I have um, laundry detergent mm. that has spilled all over our floor for that similar kind of thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, I, the word I'm thinking is crippling, but it, there's something that starts to cripple the human spirit slowly. Like the, that... It may, you know, it's so funny because it's, it's it's almost like it drives you to the point where it makes you feel like, ah, just like dump the whole thing out. Like it just, it just makes, there, I, I have a quick moment and I'm like, okay, do I just like go crazy and just dump, dump all of this out just to complete, complete it? Like there, there, there's no more screwing on. Okay. Sorry. I'm getting way off, but yeah, I forgot even what the question was about. Well, actually, I was asking you if you had any little idiosyncrasies in your relationship yeah. that are similar to the ones that I just yeah. offered it's up. That. It's that. I mean, literally, is that. Oh, really? Wait, you have the same yes, one? Yes, Well, okay. Well, see, you know where my side of it comes from? My position of, like, screw caps on, do all this. Oddly enough, I've even tracked back. I'm sort of like, where did my need for caps to be screwed on come from? And it's because my father does art and he also is a a priest and so like he had to deal with a community and so his job was to oversee the church and so basically when anybody was was to come into the church and use the church he had to make sure that everything was closed and everything was sealed and everything was fresh so that the next person that came to use it it was still available and fresh and whatever so whether it was tubes of paint or whether it was the coffee in the kitchen like he had to make sure things were sealed and everything so that everything was still available for the next people that wanted it so like this is the the household i was raised in so like i know where my desire to close everything comes from (laughs) and then of course art school working in group labs where they would always say like okay because i was a photographer in school we had to seal the chemicals so they didn't go bad because if they went bad then when we went to go use them again they would be bad so like we had to make sure at working in a group uh, studio environment to reseal everything for everybody's use in the future or else our artwork could get screwed up in the future that's my other one. Yeah, future looking, like future, future focused. And I didn't want to get reprimanded for being the person who didn't screw it on the chemicals went bad or whatever. Uh-huh. Okay. That's mine. That's where I know I came from. Okay. I'm in therapy. I, I'm working through this stuff. <laughs> hey, we all. Well, if we're evolved enough to know we need therapy, then we are. Yes. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to draw this bridge between these. These idiosyncrasies are these, these desire to be nomadic. Yeah, desire to be nomadic. It's so interesting because I, 
I think about coming home and, okay, so there's a tiny bit of order here, right? So caps are screwed, things are closed, things are, you know. But, you know, I was thinking about this because I grew up in the same place my whole life. I have wondered if in my adulthood, I wanted to go and live as many, like physically live, even if it's at a residency, like have a different, like try to adjust and adapt to as many different spaces as I could. Like there's something interesting to me, like every new like hotel room or, or living space, it feels like a new home. So I think I'm very much interested in that aspect. When did you leave Houston? What age? 18. I left for college. I went to college in New Orleans. Yeah, same with me. I left for college at 17, 18, something like that, and then never looked back. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've moved back twice to Houston. I didn't want to move back, but I did. It's so interesting because I do feel like even though I have moved back, I feel like I never looked back. Yeah, I never looked back. I did move back at one point because I went to school in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. So I did sort of go home for that. But I didn't really live at home at that time because I was a roadie touring around with rock and roll bands. So I was, you know, drug addict, touring around from Thursday till Sunday and then going to school Monday through Wednesday. (laughs) So a lot of fun. Good times. But yeah, I didn't really look back. Didn't hang out with the same people from my childhood at that, you know, so they moved on kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, even though Houston is a big city and a small town at the same time, there's always change there. So every time I moved back, it felt like it's a different cast of characters. It felt like a new, <laughs> a new season and the cast had changed and, and the set had changed. But somehow the same TV show. Yeah, the storylines are still the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're the same, but everything around it has changed. Yeah, I mean that, that's something I think about often too. The changing nature of the place that I grew up. I don't know if other people experience that in their cities. Like every time you visit, it just feels different. It looks different. It's constantly under construction. Well, it's like the uh, the old saying about like you never touch the same river twice, kind of thing. Mm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not necessarily that as much that it changes, but it's also that you've changed. Oh, gosh. Have I changed? I'm totally different than what the, the little arrogant shit I was as a as a high schooler. Like, man, I, whew, I was such an ass, like looking back on myself for sure. What, what do you think hasn't changed about you? Hasn't changed. My desire to do... To do great things with my life, I guess is sort of the easiest way to phrase it. Like, I don't want to be rich and famous necessarily. I don't want to, I don't really want like greatness thrust upon me kind of thing. But like, I want to live a really, okay, here, I'll give you, I, I know what the summation of it would be. You know how you like, when you see the first star of the night, some people like wish on the first star, you know, wish I may, I wish I might receive the wish of wish tonight kind of thing. I always said, I I hope my life is magnificent. Hmm. Now, however that translates. (laughs) No, that's really, that's really beautiful. Like, I just hope it's magnificent. Whatever that means. Magnificent. I was into thesauruses when I first (laughs) made that up. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just thinking about like, just there's so much. I'm trying to think about how to say it. 
I feel like the internet is now filled with a lot of platitudes. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of a lot. It's a lot right now. There's a saturation of it. It just really kind of sends me into a different space when I see them. You know, I, I can imagine one of them saying like, as long as your life is magnificent to you and in it being the truth, but also, you know, like basically a, a word that you have to give meaning to. Like we, like magnificent like means a thing, but, you know, if I thought like, what parts of my life are magnificent? Like that I actually think are magnificent, not what people think is magnificent about my life. You know, like beyond the, I don't, I don't know. That, that it, it just that's a question I, I feel like I roll back in my mind a lot. Well, like if I pick go back to like seventeen year old me, I would have to say I've had a pretty interesting life for sure. I mean, I went through drug addiction being a roadie to like literally like doing drugs with rock and roll like eat, like partying with Lenny Kravitz and and soul coughing and and you too and and like I mean crazy bands like porno for pyros and pearl jam like we used to party together you know like this was a long time the beastie boys they were they were so much fun but anyways the <laughs> it was a long time ago and then since then like I've lived in magnificent places I've lived in horrible places and uh, you know, and I've made it. So now I'm, I'm an American artist living in Europe. Just period. That's pretty magnificent. No, I do. I I, th- I think so. I I I think from the American romantic idea. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because reality is not what we thought it would be, but the romantic idea. Oh yeah, I do. I do think. I do think that's the thing. You know, I mean, honestly, even being in Europe right now. As an American, like it feels, there's something about it that feels like a huge feat. Even though Americans have so much, I guess, freedom to travel everywhere, but to actually live somewhere else, it's something about you kind of got to psychologically get there, you got to financially get there, just logistically. So, just to like, and I don't know, I think, I think Europe in our minds is also, <laughs> I, I would say, in so much of America, it feels like the better place. <laughs> and a lot of Europe is that, not all. Right, 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 right. Yeah. We can't do a bro- – that's like saying, you know, I want to li- – people are like, oh, don't you want to live in America? And I'm like, well, but America's a huge country, and there are a lot of different Americas. Right. So, like, there are certain Americas I do not want to live in, and there are certain ones that I would be happy to live in. Mm-hmm. Same as Europe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's try to get back on task. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I mean, this has been great fun so far, but there are I do have a couple questions. Okay. First of all, I saw on your C. Okay, wait. Let's go back to residencies. So you were encouraged to do it. How are you pulling it off? I mean, I'm looking at your thing. So you've got 13 residencies that you did in the span of seven years. I've been... I've been in the industry for 20 some years and I've done zero residencies. <laughs> so don't get me wrong. Partly my own fault. I don't apply for enough of them. And so I don't have the practice on it. I understand all that, but what, it, what kind of trick have you figured out? Because you seem to be able to get some really, really prestigious ones. I mean, you were at McDowell, you've been at Headlands. I mean, these are ones that like I look at and I'm like, Oh my God, those are magnificent. I think you said it. I applying. I mean, I had to apply for the headlands four times. Okay, well that's good to know. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, it's literally applying and... <laughs> well, okay, but wait. Yeah. So you applied. So you applied four times. You got it on the fourth try. Yes. yes. Or fifth try. Fourth. Fourth. Did you change your application? So like you tried and it didn't get, and you're like, okay, what do I have to change? Or did you continually sort of just submit the same thing over and over? I changed it. And I probably submitted, you know, it's once a year. And actually their application cycle is pretty long. So it kind of felt like more than a year. So <laughs> you have an opportunity to present work samples. and. So you change the language, you change the work samples. And of course, you know, you're still working, doing your thing during that time. So every year you have more to add or different things to add. And, you know, but over the years, I recognize that I had to recognize because I applied for a bunch of things and didn't get a bunch of things, right? Lots of no's. There are only a certain number of slots for these opportunities. So the fact that you didn't, get it. It just means that you didn't get it. It's not about you necessarily. There are a lot of people who were told no. In the batch of people that were told no, you're one of the people who were told no. So far more people get no's than yes. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. And again, and I'm listening to this, I'm like, <laughs> those things that are still out there. <laughs> yeah. Being ready for no's. I know you. I used to joke in my students, like even in like introductory courses. Yeah. By the way, I'm also a professor, so in my like intro courses, like photo one courses, I'd be like, okay, you need to learn to have a thick skin if you want to come into this industry. You cannot be. I mean, you can be sensitive and emotional in your art or whatever, but like once it comes to like putting it out into the world, you have to have a thick skin because you are going to be rejected, criticized, judged endlessly. For the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what this all is. And you got to keep doing the work, enjoying it, really enjoying it. And I think approaching it is like, oh, that would be interesting if I did that. Not necessarily, I have to have it to, to, to do X, Y, Z. I have to, you know, give me the ring, the sort of Gollum-esque energy. You ain't got you ain't got to do all that. There's a bunch of things out there. I don't know. I, I can't even believe I'm at the point where I'm actually talking about like, so kids, this is it you should do. I can't believe this. Time has flown. Let me tell you, time flies. I can't believe I'm talking to somebody else about how great your career is. A career, period. I, I think these last few years, I feel like I'm, I'm doing things. Okay, well, wait, let's take that back a step. So, like, I called it a career. You don't want to call no, it a career. That's call fine. It, a career. it is a career. It is a career. Okay. But I want to know, if you don't mind me asking, is this your full-time job? Like, so do you make enough money to live your life through your art? I do. Knowing that, of course, we all want more exactly. money. But I'm oh, saying, yes. like, you know. Yes. Like, I don't have another job. But if anyone listening to this wants to give me a job, that's great. Well, in Rome for the next year, if they want to give you a job. If you want to give me a job in Rome, I mean, there's some paperwork issues. But when I come back from Rome, if you want to offer me a position somewhere, let's let's make it more professional. If you're thinking I might be right for a position, let's be in touch. Because the reality is, of course, we could all be making more money. Well, but it's not even making more money, too. It's also like... It, it, we want stability because like our entire careers is basically gig economy. Right. 
Like we, you know, we're, I've got this for three months. I got that for six months. Maybe I've even got a contract to do whatever curating somewhere for a year. But like at the end of that year, you're out of a job again. Like that's our industry. And it's really hard on us emotionally. And then of course it affects us creatively as well. Yes. And then you talk to your therapist about it once a week and then you cry and then you wipe your eyes, you make some more art, you talk yourself off the ledge, keep going and you scroll through online till something motivates you to do more. You go back through your emails to see if there's someone that, you know, you should have emailed back about something that was going to push you forward. I mean... There are many ways to approach this real problem, this real issue. Well, it's unfortunate because like I I said, okay, my wife, she has a job and technically she's under contract, like one year contract, but they continually renew it every year because, well, she does her job well. So most companies, most industries in the world, if you do your job well, you will continue to have that job and you will continue to be paid for it, supported, get all the benefits, all that kind of stuff. You could be the most amazing artist in the world and nobody could support you, but that doesn't mean you're not making good work. And so like, it's a very, there's not that sort of one-to-one comparison. You do good work, you keep a job. Like you could be making amazing artwork and nobody will pay, pay you for it or fund it or give you a residency. And yet we continue, choose to continue to do this. Right. It's a choice, which is why I try not to complain too much about it because it it is a choice I'm making. I definitely could have made some other choices and maybe should have made some other choices, but I am here right now in a closet doing a podcast about my career with my laptop on suitcases in Rome. (laughs) So some of my choices led to this moment. Okay, wait, some of those choices were my encouragement. I told you to be in a closet. Because it's good acoustics. So just to be clear, that's not your choice. That was my choice. You could have chosen to be out on the veranda overlooking wherever. I could have. And it's a it's a lovely view of the city of Rome. No, I mean I, I I can't I'm not in a position to give anyone any sort of direction. I what I do is not completely sustainable. It's 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 rough. It's rough. In that regard, I cannot even offer anything. I can encourage people to keep doing your work, enjoy it. In terms of, I mean, I guess like, I guess maybe the interest here would be like, okay, so how did these things link together? Like you did a bunch of residencies. You just gave me the perfect thing because I was going to ask this. You were also part of the Whitney Biennial in 2019. Yes. Correct? Okay. Just double checking your CV, making Mm -hmm. sure. So. Was it having been being in a residency that led to that opportunity or was it something else? Like, basically I'm trying to say like, so how the heck did you get into the Whitney Biennial? <laughs> like, that's a dream of mine. Mm. How does one get into the Whitney Biennial? No, not one. How did you get in? How did I? I don't know. I mean, you know, the Whitney Biennial is curated. So, I mean, essentially you would have to be on a list of artists that the curators are looking at to be considered for a biennial. I mean, I was in the Texas biennial. What? I did not see that in your CV, but go I need on. to update the CV. Yes, but the Texas biennial is up right now. So I'm in the current Texas biennial, which is exciting because I'm like, oh, finally, I get to be a part of something from the place that I'm from. 
Yeah, I would say that's it. I will say following up in, 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 in a general realm of things, following up is important. I think when people email you, email them back. So if anybody hears this and I haven't emailed you back, know that I'm lying and, and telling the truth at the same time. I am going to email you back. But I do think keeping the lines of communication open, if there's interest, also there are probably ways to make yourself more visible, I suppose. Because I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I do live in New York. Which is very helpful in and of which itself. Which is very, very helpful. I'm, I'm not even going to lie. It probably was helpful to live in New York at the time at which these curators were looking for artists for the, not even looking for, they, they knew they wanted. I want to think that even if I wasn't in New York, maybe there would be a possibility, but the, my recent work had been done in New York. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure that works, but I'm just saying that there is a curatorial process, a curatorial vision. There's a studio visit. You are in the realm and the world of these people. There are things that I would love to do, but I don't know the people who make them run. Yes, I know. I'm trying to meet all those people through the podcast. I'm hoping to have them as guests, those those people that I can't attain as just like, hey, I want to be your friend. I think I, the, the idea, part of the idea of the podcast is I can go, well, here, I have this podcast that would be a way I could meet you. There you go. Part of my cunning plan. Yeah, exactly. But I had another question about the, the Whitney Biennial, because, of course, I have no experience being in a Whitney Biennial or any Biennial for that matter. So you've now been in two Biennials. Does that give you any additional pressure? Like going, moving out of that, because to a certain extent, I'll take the Whitney Biennial as like, that's a pretty big deal, like in the entire arts industry, like anybody who's been in a Whitney Biennial any year is like, oh, you're at the top of the American art scene. You know, that's pretty amazing. But so does that having been in that, does that give you any sort of additional pressures uh, leaving that or sort of after it? You know, I thought about that when it was happening, but the pandemic happened right after that. Oddly, that does help. Yeah. The panorama, if you will, really threw an entire monkey wrench in the lives of the entire globe. So things that were happening and ramping up and collecting speed in 2019, it just came to a screeching halt. So even if I did feel like, okay, okay, oh my God, what's next? <laughs> Didn't matter. Well, I mean, it is kind of the point. It's like, how do you top being in the Whitney Biennial? You know, like, what's the next thing you do after that? The artist I want to be would say, well, the, the thing after that, you know, bro, is, you know, you do your work. You know, you continue to get back in the studio and, and that's the thing after. That's the thing you do the day after. That's what I'm supposed to say, but I don't know what's after that. I really don't. And the pressure of thinking like, okay, what's, what's after that? I have to, you know, keep climbing, keep climbing, keep climbing, keep climbing. It's just unfair. It, it is a horrible system that like, no matter what pinnacle you reach in your career in the arts, there, you, there's this expectation that you should then try to get another pinnacle career thing in your career like why can't you just be happy right i don't think that we have to adhere to that but it is a present force really 
pinnacle reaching mountain climbing. <laughs> of course we all want it. Well, there's also the point of like, you know, like once you have exhibitions in a certain institution or something, then you can't sort of go back and do it at a lesser institution because that sort of lowers your status kind of thing. Like I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just old in this manner. But like the the idea is that you're continually progressing up a ladder or up a set of stairs to to some greatest level of achievement in a career. I mean, just like any career, though, you know, somebody works at an office, they want to get higher and higher in that office kind of thing, you know, climbing the corporate ladder, we're just climbing the artistic ladder. But at some point, it's like, why can't I just be enjoy it instead of to continually strive to, quote unquote, like, go higher? Yeah. And that's capitalism. That's white supremacy. I mean, what else you say at the end of the day, really? Because I, I do think the more things you do, the more strategic you come about become about the things you want to do, right? So not necessarily like, oh, it'll lesser institution. I mean, what are the top institutions? And then what's what's beyond that? What's and then is there is there a museum on the moon? Is there a gallery on the moon? Like if Elon Musk has anything to say about it, there will be. Well, it'll be a Whole Foods or something, but it wouldn't probably wouldn't be a museum first. America's a mess. Anyways. Isn't it nice being in Italy? It's nice being in Italy. But I do understand you know, because I'm not here on vacation. I'm I, I'm here to work. And also, like, I've been here longer than maybe, say, two weeks, which is about the length of, like, a long vacation. You know, you're in a place, you're like, oh, okay, I'm still in the world. Like, the actual world with actual people and the actual stuff that's happening here. And, oh, the world is ridiculous. Okay. maybe Maybe not in the ways that the place that I come from. But this place has its own stuff that like you can't really you're not really peeping out when you're on vacation. I understand. Yeah. When you're on vacation, you don't check emails. You don't do any of that stuff. But as soon as you like, even when you travel somewhere new and move somewhere new, you're like, oh, wait, oh, oh, I still have to be working while I'm in this vacation thing. Right. Well, that, that's the other thing. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the thing about the super striving of American culture. And of course, arts is no no stranger to that. It's, it's just a, a constant sort of, I mean, it's fun. It's exciting. It's fascinating. It's challenging to kind of like try to, I mean, I'm Capricorn. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's in my system to, I guess, if you believe in astrology, to be a climber of some sort is, is in your, <laughs> in your realm of possibilities. But it's exhausting to constantly have to think about where's my next sense of worth, of validation going to come from. And I just, I can't do it. I can't engage with that. As a, as a, as a Black American woman, I can't f- go too far down that road. I can go kind of conceptually down that road, but actually in terms of <laughs> what if I can't do it? And I'm like, okay, you try to get me. No. <laughs> I'm going to have some peace of mind. No, because it's amazing. I feel that I'm like that I got this far. I personally believe you have a sort of a more substantial CV than mine. And I thought mine was pretty good. But you like when I look at yours, I'm like, fuck, I got to get on the ball. <laughs> and you know, it's so funny when you call me young. I, I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to bust that bubble because actually I I'm not young and the ideal is for someone. I think I have done a lot in a short amount of time. 
I would agree with that. Yes. I mean, you more or less have built a, a pretty substantial career in seven years, it looks like. No, wait, no, it's two more years, nine years. And that's mostly because I was old when I started. Not old when I started, but I mean, art world old. Wait, if I would, like took my career back to like when I like technically like went out of art school or something, I would have been 25. So like that puts me at 23 years in the industry. But that's not true. You know, like I would be after grad school and after this other school and after another couple more years out of school kind of thing. So like, yeah, I still have 20 years in there. And yeah, it's interesting, though, the choices, though, like so you're again, I apologize if I'm asking you. Do you have children? I don't have children. Okay, so that's another sort of life choice that sort of changes how you do things. Of course. I have a partner who's also an artist. And are you all like a New York arts power couple? Ooh, power couple. I, I don't know if we're a power couple. I do think that we try to keep the power on where we live, but we, we are two artists with art careers who are together. Which is rare in and of itself. Yeah, it's rarer than I thought it was. It's not super rare, but it's rarer than I thought it would be. Well, do egos ever come into that? Because like I dated my fair share of artists in my life and much of the animosity that came between us ended up being one of us was doing better in our careers than the other one was. And we got sort of envious or jealous or whatever towards the other. And, you know, and I was on both sides of that in different relationships. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody else as much as I am myself as well. I don't think so. I think because my partner was an artist or is an artist or basically had so much more experience. Oh, I wouldn't meant to say like was an artist when we got together. I just admired his work and his career so much. And he taught me so much that I'm just kind of constantly watching him and what he does. And he's very supportive. Oh, I would hope so. I mean, if anybody's going to empathize and understand what you're going through, it's going to be another artist. I mean, that would be one, that's one of the best benefits of sort of being in a relationship with another creative person is that they totally understand the problems. Right. Because my wife does not understand all of my problems. <laughs> and I don't understand all of hers. So, you know, it goes both ways. <laughs> I got to tell my wife not to listen to this episode. Oh, she's going, I do things with all of my ones. Oh yeah, no, I yeah, she's gotten she's criticized me for before for talking too much about her on the podcast. But, <laughs> oh well. All right, um, okay. The other thing, I, I I'm not a performance artist. Now, would you define yourself as performance artist or what? How? Because like when I saw your work, it's videos of your performances. So I see you as a video artist because that's the way I interacted with it. I would say I'm a interdisciplinary artist okay yeah how do you sell or like so i guess like so the, you know so like how do you sell or because i saw you had some pieces in collections again referencing your cv <laughs> the you have some pieces in collections but so like is it that you like sell works or basically do you have people that fund a project basically so it's sort of paid for ahead of time by support before it's even created kind of thing it's like how do you actually sort of logistically make these things happen support through funding the work. I don't have a heavily object-based practice at the moment, so I don't have a traditional relationship with gallery, et cetera. 
at the moment? Does that mean you're thinking you will be or you did in the past? Yeah, at the moment, I I assume in the future, there probably will be more objects part of my practice and hopefully a relationship with a, a gallery at some point. Well, actually, which lends to the question, of course, like, so what is it that you sort of hope for? Like, what's a perfect career that you want? Now, I don't mean like a show at XYZ institution or something, but like, what would make you like, what do you, where do you see the progress of your career going? So like, we talked about earlier that you, you know, maybe be in charge of a company or something like this. Like, so what's your hopes? I think my hope is to honestly do a bunch of different types of projects, a, a bunch of different types of interesting projects in interesting places with interesting people. Yeah, I think stretching what I th- think it is that I do, stretching that further, like beyond what I even know now. Because even some of the video works, I didn't have a plan in terms of how these things would look and how they would come about. And and honestly, a lot of stuff came about because of the pandemic. So I think moving into some directions that I don't even know yet, like, oh, okay, am I going to be a work in fashion one day? Am I going to, you know, make a film one day? I think that would be the ideal, just to see how many types of mediums I can work in and further deepening, like, I guess the things that I'm interested in, the the research and just the things that I have been talking about, getting deeper into the crevices of what I've been talking about the last few years. I think that would be my ideal. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know what that so a lateral thing or vertical. Yeah. Has that changed over time? Because I look at my own career, like when I was a kid, I always, like I jokingly in, I don't know, high school, college, I had this joke with this friend of mine I grew up with, Billy. We used to say that he was getting into doing films and I was getting into being an artist. And so we said jokingly that when I have my, my retrospective at the Guggenheim, when I'm 50 years old, that he'll make a documentary film about me. So like that was my childhood dream. Now I'm almost 50 years old and I'm nowhere near having a retrospective at the Guggenheim. And of course, Billy's not even working in film anymore. So it kind of doesn't matter, but our dreams change kind of thing. So like have your dreams sort of, or your aspirations for your career changed in a, you know, over the course of your life or have they stayed pretty consistent? These things that I'm doing now, I really had no vision for them. I would say even a few years ago. So that is exciting that I'm doing things that I didn't know I could do. I didn't think I could do. I never thought I would be in the Whitney Biennial. But we all hope to be. Right, exactly. I think once I heard of it, I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Wow, that's nice. So I imagine there are things probably in my future like that, that I don't even know what they are yet. Like even not like not knowing because it's the future, but I don't, there are some, there are many things about possibilities in this art world that I don't know about yet, especially since the, the way art is sort of like, overlapping with cinema and fashion and commercial products like the the field itself is doing something is doing some different things right now which is why i'm like you know who knows where this this might go at this point in my career i am 
so far away from my initial ideas in my youth of what I thought my career would look like that it, it doesn't even look like the same career. I mean, mind you, I, I lived in the Middle East in the United Arab Emirates for many years, and I now live in Prague. And I started studied as a photographer, and I'm now we'll call it multimedia painting kind of work. So like, I'm not, I don't even own a camera anymore. So like, to, you know, my career path has gone in completely new directions that I would never have foreseen even 10 years ago. Mm. So I always wonder about like, how hard should we hold to a dream? Or how open should we be to the randomness of like sort of opportunities? I love the randomness of opportunities. And of, of course, there are some days where I think, you know, I see other artists' careers and I, I, they feel kind of mapped out. Like they see a thing they want and they sort of charge ahead towards it. And I'm not that organized. <laughs> I, I wish I was that organized. I wish I, I could make that spreadsheet to make that happen in that way. But I'll help with the spreadsheet. I love a spreadsheet. Okay, maybe we could get together and like plot it out for both of us. There's so much out there. I'm like, what specific can I say? I mean, I th again, I think the nomadic as, as a sort of like thread, I'm interested in seeing other parts of the world. Yeah, but you, and the thing that I'll say that you've did really intelligently that I did poorly is you have kept a good foundation, a base, a home base in New York. So like, no matter where you go, you always go back to New York. Me, I picked up and left. And so therefore I ended up losing all my network and relationships in any given community because I physically moved somewhere else. But you staying, having the home base in New York to always sort of go back to is, I think is an incredibly intelligent way to do an arts career versus what I did, which was not an intelligent way, which is moving and moving and moving and moving and sort of losing all these networks and relationships across my lifetime. Yeah, but, but, but every place you went, you were actually there. You weren't visiting. So that's a whole new network that people trusted you because they're like, oh, you're here. So we trust we will invest in you. To a certain extent, I have found that leaving America, no shit, even in America, like I moved, I one time sat down, I think I've moved 19 times since I graduated high school. So in 20 20 no wait so, so in 30 years i've moved 19 times and the and in america it takes two years to make good relationships so if you move to a new city it takes two years to build new relationships not you know and that's not even the best relationships necessarily but two years minimum i moved to prague and uh the other expats that i met here were like oh and i was they were like how long have you been here i was like oh i've been here about a year and they're like oh okay we only have nine more years before they accept <laughs> I'm like, great, 10 years before they will accept me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So different cultures are more accepting than others as far as like uh, outsiders and foreigners. Like I had this idea, now maybe you're having a different experience this. I had this idea that as an American artist and as an American professor and all this, I'm going to come into Prague and I'm going to be this exotic person. Like they're all going to be like, ooh, you're from America. That's so cool. They don't fucking care. <laughs> They're like, why are you here? That's that's generally their feedback on that I'm here. They're like, so what? Wow. Are they interested in you as a, like my romantic idea of like the exotic American artist coming into Italy? 
Not really. <laughs> Not really. It does help to say, I think, to some people that I am American. It hurts other to say that to other people, though. No, but I, I think to people here, as I'm introduced to people, like, oh, okay, this is, you know, because of, I think, because of the some of the racial tension, the racist tension here, that... I mean, you know, this this place has all kinds of people here. You know, it's, I mean, this is a different kind of place where people are here because it's like, it's Italy. Of course you're here. But, you know, an artist from America, yeah, I don't know what that means to them. I think they think, oh, oh, okay. Oh, you're American. Okay. So this is the frame. This is the lens. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, but you're not just a an American artist. You are a black female American artist. You got like all the little tick boxes going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think that you know, as I'm being introduced, like, oh, this is you know, this person, this is a black, this is this is an American. So, you know, American. So yeah, I don't know if (laughs) they're. I haven't run into a situation yet where people are impressed. I think that the relationship to American culture is like, oh, okay. We know that. We know of that. Okay, I'm going to come off as a complete idiot with this next little question here. So please help me either frame it well or say it in some way that's maybe more tactful than however I might say it. But has race been a part of your career in some way that you feel either it has been helpful or hurtful to your career? I mean, as insofar as I am an American and everything in America is about race. Everything? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 Everything. Everything. Even things that you thought weren't, they are. They are. Even things that shouldn't be, they are. Okay. Cause I'm going to, I'm coming at this as an idiot. I am a white male cis like I, I am all the standard stuff that is the opposite of knowledgeable or, and I hope I'm using this correctly. Woke, like is that? Did I use that correctly? I mean, but it's America. You don't have to be woke to know that every that <laughs> everything is about race. I mean, it just is. It's not even. It's like, oh, this is where America is situated in, you know, geographically. Okay, and then every and things are here about race. But uh, the question though, really, is is like, has it been? I, I tried to different it's like as in like helpful it's not helpful uh, um detrimental or helpful that's not the opposite of detrimental like has it been useful in your career or harmful I don't even know what the right word now I just feel like an idiot you get the idea of the I question I get the right? idea of the question I mean again again being a black person in America the filter through which you have to live American life means that any thing that you do there is even despite your own efforts to be an individual to you know experience american individualism to be exceptional or to be mundane and mediocre there's no where in american life where that is separate from your blackness or your your race so in the art world being a black artist, I think in this particular moment, black art is very, uh, art, art made by black artists is very much in the center 
that's a very subtle difference black art versus art made by black people and i i apologize am i allowed to say black people is that right or is it african-american i'm so bad what? with all these terms wait a minute what year is it i've been out of america for like 12 years now like i'm not sure what the right terminology is oh okay i was living in the middle east where like they literally just said african people oh like, but we would refer to them as like, oh, you're Ugandan or you're, yeah. you know, like it would be by the country they were from. So I'm all confused on how to, to refer. To, so what would be the right term for me as a white man to say? Yeah, you can say black. You can say African-American. Thank you. I feel like I should say thank you for that. But yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you can say black. I mean, but again, I mean, I am African-American. I, I mean, I am of America. Some black people don't want to be called black. Some black people, not all black people are African-American. So, I mean, so I, I personally am. It's a politicized term. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's person to person in many ways. And I'm trying my best not to be offensive, not only to you, but potentially to the listeners. To yeah, not yeah, so. yeah. I am a black artist. So I'll say this, even in ways that I don't know that my career has been impacted by my my race, my ethnicity, my gender, it has. Even if it doesn't feel like it, it has. Well, I'll give you an example of why this interests me. I was teaching in the United Arab Emirates to Muslim women. So I was at a university where all my students were Muslim women. And they were constantly writing these artist statements saying, starting with, so like first thing they say, as a Muslim woman, this is my work, blah, 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 blah. And I kept trying to encourage them not to put that in so that their work is on an even playing field. It says like, this is my work. The work is what you should judge. Not You shouldn't be judging or sort of, uh, sort of engaging with the work first off of the nature of being Muslim and off of being a woman, but being good art. Well, why would their work ever be on an even playing field as a, as a Muslim woman? Well, don't get me wrong. I have been smacked down many times saying that what I encouraged them to do was incorrect. And so that, and I understand this, but I'm just telling you the poorly thought through idea that I had when I was there, that that's what they should do. Whereas now it's, it's more about the idea that it is their life. It is their story. It is their thing. So like it should be there. And I made the mistake of trying to sort of take that out of them even though in the work it was incredibly obvious that it was done by a Muslim female artist. And so the, my point was the work speaks for itself. You shouldn't have to put it in a statement, basically. So you don't put that in the forefront. Like I don't write my statement saying, as a white, cis, male American, this is the work well, I Well, and if you did. I would be horribly criticized but, across but, the But board. would you? Would you though? I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I think that the, that's the conversation because, you know, as a white man, it's like, I don't have to write that. I, you know, I'm, I'm just a painter. I'm just a photographer, you know, and obviously my work will be, this is at the front of it. This is, this is what people will think about first. No, I think we're moving into a moment where we see a piece of work by a white man and think, okay, so, okay, white man. Okay. Now, now let me unpack after that. Let me look through look at this work through the lens of white male culture and history. Is that a good trend or a bad trend? I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think it's necessary. Fair. 
conceptually, yes. No, in an ideal world, yes. Everyone's work is on an even playing field because you're just artists and artists like, you know, it's beyond identity somehow, but not because it's made by humans. It's true. I, I'm a romantic idealist. I want art to be for, for like j- j- judged, um, viewed without the nature of like, I mean, it's even like the whole cancel culture kind of stuff with like, God, who was it? Gauguin, who was like a pedophile or whatever. Like, you know, now we look back and we're like, well, should we be appreciating his work because of his private life choices? Does that make him less of a qualified, you know, painter or sculptor or whatever he did in a different times in his life? So like the issue of like somebody's ethnicity, gender, sexuality, all these kinds of things, like should that impact the purity of the expression of your creativity. But this comparison that you just made to a person who's accused of a pedophile. Yeah, don't get me wrong. That was an extreme version. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's not an equivalent ex- example. Yeah, sorry. That was not an apple. Yeah, 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 example, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah sure. different, that's a different thing. That's yeah, a different thing. I know. You're right. A pedophilia, totally illegal, should not be appropriate. Yeah, that's or not identity. That's being a criminal. <laughs> It's true. So let's say just the identity stuff. Like like when I was teaching in the United Arab Emirates, I, I kept trying to think of, I wanted these young women Muslim artists to be able to exhibit their works in America, in Europe, in other places, and not be separated or segregated in some way because of their religion or their ethnicity, but, or their gender, sorry, and, but I'm not that. That's I, I feel like I want art to be appreciated on the merit of the, the so the craftsmanship, the concept, the the method of expression, and not on gender, race, creed, sexuality, whatever, any of these kinds of things. But unfortunately, that's not true. It just will never happen. The idea that like an art would be appreciated based on what the art is, as opposed to who's making it, is it's not. I mean, yes, of course, but why do we need to strip so much from the work? Why do we need to strip all of that for the work for the from the work for the work to be appreciated? Like why do Muslim women have to jump through hoops to take their identity out of the work when it's really these people judging it who are like, I have a problem, you know, like knowing about their identity. I don't want to know about their identity, so I can just appreciate the work. And it's just like because you can't appreciate the work knowing it's made by a Muslim woman? No, it's sort of more the opposite way to me. But, I mean, it's sort of like the idea of, like, okay, let's take, like, Damien Hirst's dot paintings. Anybody could have done those dot paintings, quite honestly. But simply because it had the name Damien Hirst attached to it, somehow it's impressive. And that's unfortunate to me. Damien Hirst is a white man, right? He is British. His position in a long line of white men getting to do stuff, it's not even that it's Damien Hurst. I mean, it's the space has been cleared for white men to experiment in every facet of life and existence. White men have had space to experiment. So him as an artist, he's experimenting with dots. It's cool, right? And it's, it's valid because... The universe is perceived through the eyes of white men. So all these activities are of experimentation are, are valid. I think that the, the, 
the issue is when that same effort is not of experimentation, even if it's some dots, there's some dots. Like there's no space for that same level of experimentation from everyone. Fair enough. Yeah. Damien Hurst gets to do a range of things. Fuck, I, I'm even jealous of Damien. He just gets to do whatever the fuck he wants. I mean, because it's like Jeff Koons. Jeff Koons could just do whatever the fuck he wants and it, people will buy it because it's a Jeff Koons, period. I mean, they're, but those two people, like, they're more brands at this point than they necessarily are artists. But that's just, <laughs> they would hate me for saying that, but it's true. I think so many people have just got in history, so many artists in history have have just gone unacknowledged or their identities have gone unacknowledged or their work has been stolen or their people have tried to kind of just have the work out there. And it's just like, there's no reason art is made by artists. It's not an arbitrary product. You know, it's not like a product that can really be separated from the context from which it was made. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I have so many thoughts about that, but yeah. I'm not sure where this conversation was trying to go. Well, I mean, so it, like, it was yeah. a question like, you know, it's, it has race, like how has it impacted your career? Well, it seems to me like, like having seen some of your work and now having been talked to you, it seems like it's a very important part to you, to you, not necessarily to, you know, the funders or the other, the other side of it, but to you, it seems to be a very important sort of defining characteristic that sort of, you know, helps with your work. Yes and no. I mean, it, it is, of course. I mean, it is, it is, it is. But in so much as I think that in in the context of American art, landscape American art, like this moment we're in, I'm investigating everybody's, I'm looking at everybody's identity when I think about their work. And I'm thinking about the context from which this work emerged when I look at an artist's work. Well, see, it's funny because like when I was a kid, one of my favorite pieces ever, I was remember being in fifth grade and I went to the Smithsonian and I saw this piece. I, they probably wouldn't even call it art back then, but it was this thing called, I, I looked it up on the internet here. It's called the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly. Mm. And it was this guy who, he was a janitor in the DC school system. And he had taken home trash, so like broken tables, broken chairs, torn paper. And he built in a garage an entire throne room for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wow. And then he wrote, I think, five books handwritten in a language that only he and Jesus Christ would understand. And to this day, nobody has been able to decipher those books because, well, only this man, James Hampton, and... Jesus Christ could understand it. And I loved that work so much. I still admire this work immensely. But he never thought of it as a piece of art. He thought of it as he was building the second coming of Jesus Christ's throne room. And so like, it's that passion that I was just like, oh my God, that's so amazing. And he happens to be a black man. Mm -hmm. But see, I didn't know that at the time. And it didn't matter to me at the time. I loved his passion passion to create this thing and his need to create this thing and it didn't matter to me at the time what his ethnic background was or anything like that so it's very interesting that the times have changed that that actually has some relevance to the works now in america they teach you to think we are taught to think and i i know because i'm 
from around this generation where you're taught to think that color doesn't even, their color doesn't even matter. And you know what I'm saying? That was, that was real in American culture. Right. And really it wasn't, it was for white people to kind of try to understand, try to move past a racist past by saying their color didn't even matter. And I, I feel like, because it's, it's, it, you don't say that when they're white, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like a way to kind of like deal with like this dissonance of, I like something that somebody black did. Oh, you know what? Color doesn't even matter. I like the thing no matter what. But I think that it should ma- also matter that the person is black that made this thing because that sows, it sows it. I'm not saying it should matter to you. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying I can imagine another, like you said, you saw this when you were young. I'm imagining another, young, a child seeing this and being floored and having a, a similar kind of like, you know, relationship to him. But I, I think fully contextualizing it as a black man making this thing helps with a full appreciation of it. I get it. I mean, and in this whole conversation, Personally, I feel like an idiot, but I'm like also. An idiot. Um, I feel like I'm the most unqualified uh, person to talk about racial issues. <laughs> who's qualified and who's not? I mean, we are human, so we are qualified. I mean, I've had my fair share of, of friends in all ethnicities, as far as I can tell. I mean, yeah. So, like, I I never thought of myself as racist until I went to the Middle East. Then I started noticing that I did have some pre-judging and, and, and issues with racism that were there that I was unaware of. Obviously, I will sit here and blame my parents and where I grew up and when I grew up for a lot of these things, but now they're in me. So like, I believe everybody has some amount of racism in them. Anybody say, I'm not racist. Bullshit. Everybody has some amount of racism. The question is whether you act on it and and how you do it, how you practice it, or or noticing it. Like I've noticed since I went to the Middle East and then left the Middle East, I'm constantly like, oh, that's a racist comment, <laughs> like about people saying things. I'm like, that's racist. So I've been I've been more cognizant of it, let's say, in the past couple of years because I've sort of left America and I'm sort of looking back from a outsider's perspective with what going on in America. And I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a racist comment. Yeah. It's a pretty racist place. Yeah. But it's not alone. I mean, I'm here in the Czech Republic and I'm sorry, cause I'm funded by the Czech government, but I'm going to say this anyways, <laughs> but like they have their own form of racism against uh, gypsies and Romas. Oh, course, everywhere. So like, I mean, Italy as well. 100%. Yeah. There's nowhere in the world that isn't, you know, dealing with this on some level but you would hope that the arts being the open-minded creative liberal minded people as a general whole in the arts industry that we would be better at it mm. and i'm not thinking buyers like yeah <laughs> artists thinking, themselves like, the, and the people in the the sort of that side you know the curators and the galleries you know not the people dealing with the money side of it but like the creative people you would think we would be better with it yeah you would think but I mean, I, I do think that as artists, we we have the capacity to learn out in the open, to learn and find information and play with it and re 
present it to the public, like as we are learning in a particular type of way, an experimental way that I think is unique. That's different from maybe academic, you know, maybe, maybe the access to this learning out in the open in real time. It's a, a bit more accessible the way artists are able to deliver it and contribute. So I, I will I will say that we there is the potential is there from artists. I think if if anywhere can transcend these issues, I would imagine the creative industries would be one of the first. Certainly has the potential to be definitely. I mean, there's a lot of power involved. So where there's power, there's all this other stuff. But the potential, the potential, because we get to engage in fictions, we get to make things that are not real and things that we give value to. So certainly, certainly. We get to shine light on society, positive or negative. A- absolutely. And I, and I think that some, some people would say that the artist has a responsibility to do that. That's how I was trained. Yeah. All right. This has run incredibly long for my general podcast, but are there any topics you want to talk about that I didn't bring up? Maybe something that's about you that I didn't know that I couldn't research online? Not necessarily. I probably have a couple. In general, I love Black people. I am trying to be the best artist I can be. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad that, you know, through this network of art organizations that, you know, we came together, you know, I was just at Anderson Ranch. So that was a very quick sort of loop connection. The internet. The internet. I think that's what I have to to say about that and, and, and resisting the urge to exhaust oneself in this, this, this sort of greater striving. I, I'm, I'm trying to actively and, and vocally and mentally really resist it. Resist the, the wearing yourself out for the world. It's hard. I mean, I'm constantly trying to please many different attributes of my life. Like, you know, you're trying to earn more money. You're trying to get more exhibitions. You're trying to have more sales. You're always striving for something better. And it's it's a struggle. Uh, uh, at, at on the good days, mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah, save that energy for your loved ones. Indeed, and ask them to screw the caps. And on. ask them to screw the caps all the way on. If there's nothing that we got from this, lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, that's all. Okay. I hope you have learned and enjoyed as much of this podcast as I have in producing it. I've learned so many things that I've done wrong in my career and so many things that I need to do better or more efficiently in the future. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your own creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Nebulous1966 for their five-star rating and comment. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. 
The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.